So as I mentioned earlier, that we are sort of at this stage of summarising um, chapter 2 in Titus. So we, this evening's um, sermon is titled Living by the Gospel. And in the, in the first sermon in this series, uh, the qualities of a healthy church, I said that gospel roots lead to gospel fruits. Gospel roots lead to gospel fruits. And the wonderful truth of the gospel grounds a believer in community, wherever they may be, where they're to be nursed and they're to be cared for by God's people. And so the purpose of Titus 2 verse 1 to 10 is to help us to know how the church should function as a body in order to grow and to live healthy Christian lives. And the gospel is Jesus, is Jesus saving sinners dying on the cross to purchase our pardon, to forgive us of our sins, to live the perfect life that we could not live. And thus, Jesus saves sinners from the works of the flesh, from death, from the power of Satan, from the world system, and ultimately God's wrath. We are given an eternal life with God. It's an amazing thing that the Lord has brought for us. But this evening, we want to examine the impact of the gospel with regard to daily living. The impact of the gospel with regards to our daily lives. And so this serves, as I said, as a summary message before we move on to the next section. And there's three points I want us to see this evening. Living by the gospel, number one, keeps the word of God from being reviled. As we find that in verse five. And number two, living by the gospel quietens opponents and puts them to shame. We see that in verse eight. And finally, living by the gospel reveals Christ Jesus and makes him known. We see that in verse 10. We live in a world now where we, if you tell someone that you are Christian, it's, it's almost like an offensive language sometimes, you know. They already have their backs up. They, oh, okay, I think I know who, you know, the way you're going to act or who, what you're going to say or what you're going to think about me. And uh, it's almost like we're swearing at them if you say to someone, I'm, I'm a Christian. Um, there's a real possibility that we may be marginalised, possibly. But the world's view of Christians has changed so much over the last hundred years, as we know it very much even in the UK setting. It seems that our influence on the world is waning, that many people identify as Christians but do not follow the way of Christ. It feels like living as a Christian in this modern age is more challenging than ever. The government embraces counter-biblical values. We know our recently crowned king openly promotes multi-faith groups within our society. The education system stifles Christian influence on the school curriculum. Most of the media, sports industry, journalism, the average person on the streets reject biblical standards and godly living. And if you were to go to the Broadway in Bexley Heath and ask people what they thought of of King Charles and the coronation last weekend, I think it's kind of 50-50. Some royalists would be very much looking forward to his reign and others would call him names that you can only but imagine. But if you were to ask 
the same people, what they thought about Christians, what do you think they would say? What would you think they would say? I, I, I think sometimes we think, some people will say, well, Christians are bigots. Christians are judgmental. Christians, you guys are just deluded to believe all this fairy tales. You might say, uh, yeah, that, that, that happy, happy, clappy church down the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, know, I know that type of church, right? Well, in actual fact, it turns out that the opposite is true. Certainly by a, uh, a survey, a research project that was done in 2015. This research by the UK Evangelical Alliance conducted by the Barna Group. This is a professional polling organisation. They recently announced the results, this was back then, um, in 2015, of a large-scale survey into what people in the UK think about Jesus, but also Christians in general. Uh, The original findings were, they were just blown away because they thought, this is not quite correct. So they they polled more people and they were surprised to find that the original findings were correct. This is what they said. The survey revealed that two-thirds of people who described themselves as not Christian, um, that is from another religion, and with no or no religion at all, know a practicing Christian. And apparently they like us. They like us as Christians. Two-thirds of non-Christian adults stated they knew a practicing Christian, but 40% of those said they, they were a friend, and about a third of them said they were a family member. The vast majority of people described Christians that, with these words. About 65% of people said Christians are friendly. About 50% said they're caring. About 48% said they're good humoured. You know? 38% said we are generous. 26% said we are encouraging. 24% said we are hopeful people. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, there were, there were smaller numbers of people who would describe us, apparently, as narrow-minded. Only 13%. 10% actually said we were, we were hypocritical. And 8% said we were uptight. 5% said we were selfish. So the numbers are relatively low in comparison to what we might think. And I'm not sure that this might be the case now in 2023, because this is 2015, but it does pose the same question about our perception of what the world thinks of Christians. Could it be that as Christians we focus too much on the negative media stereotypes and have believed that? Or maybe as Christians we are just not vocal enough about our faith, and so we don't often offend people by sharing our faith, so we keep quiet, and so people think, hey, you're okay. You're one of us, right? Or maybe Christians who follow Christ by word and deed still have a considerable impact on the society that we're part of. More than we are aware of. Take a pick of those three things. But one thing is for sure from the survey, 45% of non-Christians, young people most especially, they said they don't know a practicing Christian. 45% of non-Christians, young people. Compare that to 33% of non-Christian adults. See, note that Christian influence is declining. 
as we go down from different generations to the younger generations, they just don't come in contact with as many Christians in their lives. Why did I bring up all these stats? Because your life as a Christian still has a strong and spiritual impact on the world that you live in. We are called to be salt and light. In Philippians 1.27, we are told to live our lives and behave in the manner worthy of the gospel. And so as I mentioned this morning, that Paul lays emphasis on this impact of gospel living. The impact is emphasised in conjunctions such as that or so that, as it relates to the three groups of the people he discusses, which we will look at now. Women, men and bond servants. Let us look at that first impact. Living by the gospel keeps the word of God from being blasphemed. It keeps the word of God from being reviled. We see that in verse 4. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children and to be self-controlled, pure and working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, I'm not looking to single or to pick out the women, all right? I promise, right? But as we've been going through the Bible expositionally, a few of the sermons obviously have been bringing up specifically about particular groups within the church, women and men. But there's some vital points here that we need to address and to see and to examine. That how Christian living is related to honouring and valuing God's word. A few sermons ago I mentioned that seven areas that older women were to train younger women and these, in, in, these were found in Titus 2, 3 to 5, which were younger women are to love their husbands. They are to love their children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, workers at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Wives love their husbands out of devotion and choice. This is a kind of love the Bible here is describing is based on a committed friendship the love of friendship this use of love is is only used here in the bible it's and it's philandros which is derived from philos it describes a woman who is fond of man this is the love of companionship of friendship this is god's perfect plan that you should continually be fond of your own husband not fond of other men but your own husband this love must be cultivated It must grow. Women are to love their children whether they are born again or not. Once again, this is the same love um, Paul is describing here to Titus. He's saying there is a danger that we feel in some cultures that befriending our children is dangerous grounds for them to be too familiar, to disrespect us. Or it may clash with our parenting. And that the lines of parenting and friendship can become blurred. But we are to grow in fondness of our children. Even as they test our patience. We are to instruct and discipline in fondness and not harshly. Self-control. But to be sensible, sensible, able to control desires, passions, restraints, things we do and things 
we can't or don't do. To be pure, most especially, this is specifically talking about sexual purity. Let your husband be the one you confide in most. Take care that you, not, you do not seek emotional or conversational needs from other men. It's dangerous grounds, even for women. Workers at home. Paul is not preempting the post-COVID working life by stating women should only work from home or, or at, at home. Rather, the prioritization of the home is the point. See, feminism has sold a lie to many women. Many women struggle with this idea. Should I pursue a career? I want my own money or, I should, or should I stay at home? It's not exciting. It's honorable. But these questions are sometimes raised in our minds. But the question is, is whether decisions you come to alongside your husband's are to prioritise the home. That's the real thing. Are you prioritising your home? That's the main thing. Whatever decisions you agree together, is are you prioritising the home? Submissive to your own husbands, whether they are born again or not, once again. And so we know this word submissive is a military word to be subject to your own husband. This is a willing and a trusting submission to your husband and does not suggest in any way that you'd become a doormat, that anything goes. No, men and women have equal worth and as equal value as image bearers of God. And so to be subject to your husband is Christ-like. As you think of Jesus' incarnation, Jesus is God, but in order to bring and effect salvation to us, he was willing to subject to God and the God the Father and God the Holy Spirit as he lived on earth, yet still God. And as a Christian, do, do not give room for the word of God to be berated or attacked because your way of life is not rep- representative in keeping with the word of God. That's what it's saying here. That actually the way in which we live our lives, even at home, it should be in such a way that others can't condemn. Others don't revile against God's word. They don't berate it. They can't attack it. It's actually you're living the gospel life, a gospel-shaped life. And so Paul not only has a word here for women, but he also has a word here for men and all people. He speaks to Titus. He says to Titus to model gospel living. And this is our second impact. He says this, the living, and this is our second point, living by the gospel quietens opponents and puts them to shame. See, having addressed the older women and younger women, he asks, Titus, to urge the younger men to be self-controlled. We've spoken about this previous sermons of of self-control as a fruit of the Spirit. And that we all need to labour in this. But verse 7 reads, show yourself, and this is Paul speaking to Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. That's Paul instructing Titus as a young man, as a young elder. He's saying, in your teaching, show integrity, show dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be 
put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So two points we see from this is that the gospel living through the the gospel is lived through the modeling of good works. And so we gospel living is through the modeling of good works. Number two, the, the gospel living is through teaching. It's what is encouraging Titus. Good works and teaching. And so let's take a look at that first one. Gospel living through modeling of good works. Is Titus as uh, as God's servant, a Christian, an elder, a church leader, is he instructed only to model in almost like a part-time thing? No, he says in every way, in every way, be a model of good works. He's to set an example of good works as part of his daily living. There's a common saying that actions speak louder than words. Actions can't, can't speak, but they, they, are, they are a sure indicator of actually what we love, what we enjoy, enjoy what we believe in. And so people are, that are interested in what we say, but they care more so about how we live. It's not just what we say, but how we live. And so when I think in line with my work, just some things I see sometimes is you've got people who are smoking um, advisors, stop smoking advisors. They themselves are the very ones that are very, they're the ones that are smoking. They'll, they'll go out for a break and you just like, how does that match up? You're helping other people quit, but you can't help yourself. It's such a conundrum sometimes. And in, in the world of politics, we have heard of numerous cases of politicians laying down laws that conveniently they don't uphold themselves. Last week, we were out on the Broadway, we were sharing the gospel. And we encountered some young fellas, right? Some young chaps who, they said, oh, Prince Charles is a fraud. I said, oh, he might be a fraud. Uh, so I proceeded to, to ask them, that if, have you stolen anything in your, in your life? It's like, yeah, 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 we all steal. You know, everyone does it. Yes, of course. Well, I said, you're a fraud as well. And that's the truth. They agreed. And that's how our lives the world system is our, our leaders our politicians and sadly even church leaders are poor examples of morality and good works we are also guilty of this see good works originate from the good news permeating the life of a believer they include the fruit of the spirit living a godly life that denies selfish ways Seeking to direct people to Christ Jesus, the good worker himself. He is helping others to be conformed to Christ as you are being conformed to him. And so if Titus as a shepherd should model this, it means also the sheep that, Titus, that Paul is um, asking Titus to address must also be an example of good works. So I ask you this evening, are you... A man or woman who is an example even to other brothers and sisters in the church. As a leader in the church, are you an example for others to follow? Are you an example to others in how you approach your suffering and life challenges? Do you consider that others are looking to you 
You may not, may not know it, but others are looking to you as an example. Or are you struggling in this area? See, opponents can only be nullified when your life models that of Christ. They cannot say anything evil. They cannot say anything evil about God's word, and about the church. When your life is living according to the truth, that's so important. Point two. So Titus is also to demonstrate this, not just by modelling, but also through his teaching. Now, whilst it seems that Paul is about to instruct Titus on what he should teach the, 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 the Christians in Crete, what he actually does is doubles down on his first point. Let's read again that verse 7 to 8. He says, and in your teaching, show. He says, and in your teaching, show. He's saying, preach the gospel, Titus. Teach what accords with godliness. Know that you have been entrusted with the gospel of peace and reconciliation and deliverance. But don't just teach it. He's saying, teach it demonstrating integrity, dignity. And finally, he states what should be taught, sound speech. So, so crucial. Sound speech, sound doctrine, healthy, pure and uncorrupted instruction of the gospel. See, a a famous um, childhood story. We all know it. There was once a boy who looked after some sheep. The boy was bored. One day he played a trick on the villagers. The villagers came up to the hill to save the sheep. When they got there, there was no sheep. The boy laughed at them. You must not tell lies, said the villagers. They went back to the village. You must not tell lies, shouted the villagers. And they went back. Soon the boy was bored again. He shouted, wolf, wolf. The villagers rushed again up the hill to save the sheep. But later that day, a wolf came to the field. What did he do? He devoured all the sheep. The boy shouted, shouted, wolf, wolf. This time, no one came to help. The wolf ate all the sheep. So the boy was not honest. And his integrity was gone. He lost his, his dignity and no one respected his words. When he spoke the truth, no one believed him because he did not show integrity and dignity with sound speech. No one believes a liar even when they're telling the truth. When we live a lie, even though we're telling the truth, it doesn't match up. There is no dignity. There is no integrity. There is no sound speech. And so the best way to adorn good doctrine that you receive is to live it out. Quiet your opponents by living as Christ would have you. Opponents are kept quiet and put to shame by believers living out the good doctrine and a gospel-transformed heart. The truth cannot be condemned. But here in Titus 2, 8, gospel living built on the foundation of sound teaching silences opponents and puts opponents to shame 
for having nothing evil to say about us, Paul writes. See, the boy who cried wolf was put to shame when he did not have sound speech with integrity and dignity. And the end was disastrous for the sheep. Living in Christ according to sound doctrine. Number one, keeps the word of God from being reviled. But also it quietens opponents and puts them to shame. But finally, the first, the, the, the final impact is that gospel living reveals Christ Jesus and makes him known. Gospel living reveals Christ Jesus and makes him known. We discussed this in the morning, but I'm going to read again verse 9 to 10 in its context. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. I said this morning that the Bible does not condone slavery. And although slavery existed even before the Mosaic law was given, but even thousands of years later in the New Testament, we see servants and slaves mentioned again. And these New Testament Christian servants were asked not to rebel against their masters, especially those that are cruel. Yet the Bible declares here that bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything for the purpose, why? For the purpose of adorning the doctrine of God our Saviour. Of the three points we're looking at this evening, this is the most positive. We've talked about not reviling, how we live so that we don't allow others to revile against the word of God. We've spoken about how we should live in such a way that we are grounded in the gospel. But here, this is more speaking in a positive way, saying how do we adorn the gospel of our God and Saviour? So a slave is to be obedient in everything that is not contrary to God's will. But what lesson do we learn from this? When you live in the light of the gospel, we're doing three things. We're one, demonstrating the grace of God. We're demonstrating God's grace. We're living out our faith in Jesus. And finally, we are revealing the beauty of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. How do we demonstrate the grace of God? But the doctrine of God our Saviour is revealed in verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That is for Jews, for Gentiles, for slaves and free people. The grace of God is for all people, Paul is writing. God has given every believer the privilege of not only sharing the grace of God, but demonstrating this grace. When we demonstrate grace, it's not because the person we're demonstrating to or showing it to deserves it, but rather the highest motivation is because we have received that grace ourselves. That's why we show it to others. We show it so that we are renouncing our ungodly ways to live this godly life. Number two, secondly, living out 
your faith in Jesus. We read again in verse 10. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Faithfulness in your work. Faithfulness in marriage. Faithfulness in raising your children, your, your, your family, and serving in the church. There are opportunities, as we said this morning, for us to show our faith and to live out our faith in Jesus. So as you grow in faith, as you trust in Jesus, you should be growing in this faithfulness to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in every given circumstance. Thirdly, revealing the beauty of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. See, the context of bond servants here makes this truly outstanding. Being like Jesus, the servant king, should be the ultimate motivation of every Christian. True worship, true worship of God our Saviour is knowing him and making him known. We love to talk about people that we love, don't we? We love to share about the good things that they, that's going on in their lives. Ladies, we know, like to put on makeup and jewellery to adorn the external frame. Men adorn the external frame in other ways also. But we are, we are told to adorn and to reveal the beauty of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, in the home, in the church, in the world, in love, in how you love others, in discipleship, in modelling, in service. This is the grace that the Lord has given to us to show others. The Bible reminds us in Isaiah 53, 2-3, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. See, revealing the beauty of Jesus is counter-cultural. It is a sacrificial life, not adorning and idolising ourselves, but honouring King Jesus. It is not hiding our face from Jesus, but daily seeing his face and showing him to the world. It is a daily submitting of ourselves to him, Christ, who was oppressed, who was afflicted for our sake. Because Jesus was stricken for our transgressions, we're able to forgive others for their sins. He had perfect control of his mouth and his speech when reviled against, so we can resolve to have self-control also. His chastisement has brought us peace, and so we seek to live in peace with others around us. He had wise words for his opponents, knowing how to rebuke and correct. And so as Christians, we do the same. He taught and instructed with a dependency on the Holy Spirit, showing integrity, dignity and sound speech. And so we do such. He called out sin as the divine judge. And so we direct others to this divine law of Christ. He interceded for his transgressors. So we are able to pray for those who transgress against us. Because he loves us with an eternal love. We demonstrate this love and kindness to those around us, yet speaking the truth to them. 
Do we live out this life? Do we live out what we profess? That's the main thing as Christians. That actually our understanding of the gospel must be lived out. This is the purpose of Paul writing to Titus. To say, saying to do this, exalt, rebuke, declare these things continuously. That what we say must match how we live. Our lives during the week, at home, at church, it must be consistent with the gospel of God that we received. For when the grace of God appeared, he saved us. Saved us from ungodliness. Made us his very own people. And so if you're not his people, if you're not in the household of God, if you're not of Christ, I beseech you to turn away from this world. Turn away from selfish living. Turn away from these things that draw us only to think of things here on earth that are temporary. To live is Christ. There is no other form of living that's worthwhile. We must only live for him and him alone. The Bible says he's coming back. He's coming back one day to judge the living and the dead. I beseech you to turn to the Lord and know his goodness. Know that he is a living God who in his word and his deed, he never changes. He's always the same. Brothers and sisters in Christ, be ready to give an answer of what you believe by living out the gospel. Living by the gospel keeps the word of God from being blasphemed, from being reviled. Living by the gospel quietens opponents and puts them to shame. Most especially, living by the gospel beautifies. It reveals Christ Jesus and makes him known. There is no, nothing else than being known by Christ. That is our desire that as we walk this earth as Christians, that we truly know him. We grow in intimacy. We grow in understanding of who he is. This has got to be our desire every day. And so as I close, we'll be looking soon at and unpacking further what this wonderful gospel is. But I thought today we'll just summarise just some of the things that we have looked at here in Titus. Just that we are consistent in everything and in every way that we live our lives. And so we must know that this gospel is not just lived within us and so, and so it's not for anyone else, but we must live it out so other people see Christ. We, it's so, so important. When we go on a board way, when we are at work, people only see and know of Christians and know more about Christ, sometimes just the way we live our lives. Sometimes we get an opportunity to share, but most times it's the way in which we live. So let's draw closer to the Lord that we may witness and adorn the gospel of our great and saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.